good afternoon. I'm Al Cresta. Commonly, for men and women who come into full non-Catholic Christians who end up coming into full communion with the Catholic Church, a sizable number, a percentage of them, will tell you that some of their biggest uh, theological worries and doctrinal worries uh, came up surrounding the Blessed Mother. Uh, They had respect for Mary as uh, the the one who received um, the visitation of the angel uh, and the uh, commission to be the mother of our Savior. Uh, But when it comes to the Church's uh, dogmas regarding immaculate conception, the bodily assumption, perpetual virginity, they say, gosh, I just don't think you can find that in Scripture. And they don't, uh, that's often a way of hanging back before they can uh, affirm, you know, before they can state that they affirm all that the Catholic Church teaches. I know this because it was my case back in the uh, mid 1980s. It was a few years yet before I finally realized that uh, the Church's teaching on the Blessed Mother was, first of all, about the nature of Jesus. Uh, It had a lot to do with the whole mystery of the Incarnation. But we have two guests with us right now who have put a lot of thought into this and have provided a definitive guide for solving biblical questions about Mary. It's called Mary Among the Evangelists, and uh, the authors are Reverend Dr. Uh, Christian Kappas, uh, currently academic dean and professor at St. Cyril and Methodius Byzantine Catholic Seminary in Pittsburgh, Pennsylvania. He's the author of numerous books and articles in peer-reviewed publications that touch upon Mariology. And we also have with us William Albrecht, who is a co-author of the book and is um, co-host for Reason and Theology. Uh, he uh, appears on EWTN, uh, Virgin Most Powerful Radio, and other networks. He runs a website dedicated to the early church fathers that uh, includes unique translations, articles, commentaries, and debates uh, on the fathers uh, in the church. Gentlemen, good to have you with me. Thank you. Thanks for having us. Yeah, thank you very much. What a pleasure to be here with you, Al. Well, let me ask, uh, uh, Father, when did, uh, what was the origin of the book? Uh, when did it first become clear that this was something that had to make its way into print? Well, it's, uh, it's an excellent starting point because uh, the book is really a development from a series of popular articles that were provided for free on the very website that you advertised on, on William's behalf in which we just wanted to provide um, Christians, and uh, specifically a lot of Catholic Christians, since that's a lot of the people that William dialogues with, but Mm -hmm. he also uh, has informal but regular meetings with Orthodox, uh, Oriental Orthodox, and uh, even Protestant Christians. And uh, we, I I proffered or offered him uh, to do a little article on the Annunciation, and uh, from there I was really astounded at how many downloads William was reporting that there were. And so we uh, we put together a little program to do about, um, I guess altogether it was about four or five articles that I tried to keep under 15 pages apiece mm-hmm. in order to try to help them understand um, what I was seeing um, from uh, uh, reading the Greek New Testament and dialogue with the Greek Old Testament, by and large. And the articles really took off, and uh, at a certain point, uh, William and I agreed that 
probably the next step is is to compile these and perfect the articles which were in a popular non-published fashion uh, and, and to provide those in, in, in a book that people could purchase, even though the information, about 60 or 70 percent of it, was already available online. Uh, William, what were some of the, the most vexing questions uh, that made you realize you had to settle down and get this material in print and available? What were some of the most vexing questions regarding the Blessed Mother? That, that is a fantastic question, Al. And uh, working and dealing in apologetics for quite some time, I, I realized that uh, coming over to, into Catholicism from Protestantism, the frequent objections you commonly hear, as you know quite well, are, well, how can Mary uh, be immaculate because she needed a Savior? Right. Uh, how could Mary have been given honor uh, by our Lord and Savior if in Luke 11 she was, you know, clearly, uh, you know, there was clearly a rebuke there, mm-hmm. uh, a direction to not giving our mother honor, and, and many other questions that really, I mean, I'll be quite honest, Al, they were on my mind when I was a Protestant, and I recognized coming over into Catholicism, our separated brothers and sisters still had those on their minds, and really, even though I've been in the church, thanks be to God, for so many years, these objections have not gone away on the other side. Right, right. Yeah, even though there are much better uh, apologetic materials today than there were 30 years ago, uh, those objections are still out there. I agree. Yes. Well, let's get to let's get to uh, the one other methodology issue here, and that is your focus upon the scriptures themselves. Uh, it, you make a point of really saying that you wanted to root this argument in the biblical texts. Uh, oftentimes, people will say, "Well, you know, yeah, the scriptures uh, uh, they they are we sort of believe in the inspiration. We believe in the inspiration of scripture, but you know, we don't get all of our doctrine from scripture, so it's not very important to really make the effort to tie these dogmas to scripture." How do you reply to that? Would you like to go? That first? is a really good question. Yeah, yeah. Go ahead, Father. I'd rather Father uh, take that one. That's a great question for Father. Sure. Go ahead, Father. Yeah. Um... I think that the, the the church is allowed a wide berth for that. There's a classical sort of um, division between a Franciscan and a Dominican approach. Um, one thinking that the, the scriptures do contain materially everything uh, that we believe in our very very expansive creed and magisterium, and another one saying that it's sufficient that um, we can reason from the scriptures mm-hmm. necessarily some of these truths. Right. And um, we, we didn't really weigh in on that. We just took as the point of departure um, the presumption that we could find everything, Marian-wise, uh, to say nothing of uh, the other dogmas of the Church um, in the Scriptures. And uh, we wanted to figure out what we could find out by just taking a look at the use, uh, again, mainly, of the uh, Greek Old Testament by the New Testament writers, who 90% of the time are cataloged to quote from the Greek Old Testament, That's and right. because it is not a fashionable thing to do, even among scholars, uh, we made a lot of fun, interesting, and I think uh, ultimately irrefutable discoveries that, uh, that really privilege Our Lady. So it's very important then to focus in on that Greek translation of the Old Testament, is that right? Oh yeah, absolutely. I mean, uh, Luke, Luke especially, who of course has the most to say about Mary, is by and large just weaving various citations from the Septuagint. Mm-hmm. Um, as you can imagine, if uh, as I've said uh, in another time and place, um, you know, when you walked into an ancient Bible store, you didn't have a thousand and one 
translation. You only had one. <laughs> That's right. Yeah. That's all you had. And, and basically you had some variations with that one that was available in the popular language of Greek. We don't really have Latin translations of the Bible yeah. that we can verify until about 250 A.D. Right. Uh, and so basically you're, you're kind of stuck with one edition, which makes it really easy for everybody to know where your stuff is coming from. But eventually the Church got to the point where when you had new editions and different editions coming out, that people kind of forgot to prioritize reading, I think, the only edition that was available to the writing of the New Testament. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Um, what is the relationship between the Greek translation of the Old Testament, Septuagint, and uh, any of the early Hebrew uh, translations, or Hebrew presentations, uh, excuse me? Yeah, um, and I'll let uh, William uh, add a couple cents uh, on this one, but uh, just just in summary, I'd say uh, I certainly think that that 80 or 90 to 10 split is important because it means that you can't use one without the other. Okay. Uh, and there are there are competing traditions, meaning we, we're not really sure in any one given time or place which one we should prefer based off of scholarship. Mm-hmm. Uh, our key of presuming which is the right reading is the one that the New Testament writers use, of course, because yes. they're canonical scripture. Right. Uh, and, then, and then I would say that uh, probably the last thing um, maybe to keep in mind with the relationship between the Septuagint and uh, the Hebrew or the Masoretic text is, because you have a lot of Jewish people who are translating into Greek, and they're perfectly fine with taking their baseball and football idioms and just translating them literally uh, into Greek. Mm-hmm. Uh, they don't make any sense to a Greek speaker. You have to be a Hebrew uh, who's speaking in Greek with a lot of these idioms. So you can't really read the Septuagint unless you know a lot of the Hebrew idiom that's behind what they're trying to say in the Greek language. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. Well, if you want to add anything to that? That, that is a great point, and I totally agree with Father. And I, I think another thing that we, we realized when working on this, uh, this, this project, Al, is, is when we look at the evangelists, uh, we look at Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, we recognize how heavily reliant they are on the Greek text of the Septuagint. But it, to me, what is even more incredible, such as when we touch upon uh, the perpetual virginity of Mary, which, by the way, we, we believe that you can clearly see that Mary's taken a vow of virginity there, we recognize, well, okay, well, what is, what is Luke, um, who clearly wrote in the style of a historian, what is Luke referring to? And we recognize yes. that all of everything in Luke, as you know, Al, is so heavily reliant on the Greek, even the virgin birth prophecy. Right he would have clearly known that his audience would have been familiar with what he was hearkening to. They would have picked up uh, all the implications of some of these key words that he used. I agree. Well, let's talk a little, let's talk a little bit about that, because uh, this is related to uh, the, the brothers and sisters of Jesus. That's where you're being in chapter 1, 2. Mary in the Gospel of Matthew and Mark, the question you raise at the very beginning, who are the brothers and sisters of Jesus? The significance of that is that if he had, um, uh, you know, uh, bro- biological brothers and sisters, or those who passed through the womb of Mary, that would be the death of the Catholic doctrine of the perpetual virginity of Mary. So, let's go to that. What is the problem behind the, the phrase, the brothers and sisters of the Lord? That is a great, great question. Yeah. Uh, Father, you, you want to maybe start off with that, and I'll, I'll piggyback uh, off of uh, what, what you had there? 
Well, as you wish. Um, yeah, I think one of the fun first things to think about that is often missed, um, and I'm, I'm very humbled that um, Scott Hahn was was one who uh, drew our attention to this, was that it's, it's, it's an original talking point nowadays. I don't think it would have been an original talking point to people that were, again, reading the only edition of the Bible that exists, which was Greek and uh, Greek, uh, for the average Christian. Uh, I'll tell you what, I just heard the music come up. Let's take a break. We'll come back and pick up the conversation from there. We'll have sufficient time to unpack it. Uh, We're talking with uh, Father uh, Christian uh, Kappas and William Albrecht. They are together uh, the authors of Mary Among the Evangelists. It's the definitive guide for solving biblical questions about Mary. Good afternoon, I'm Al Cresta. We're looking at Mary Among the Evangelists. That's the title of the book by uh, Father Christian Kappas and William Albrecht. The, the definitive, gu- definitive Guide for Solving Biblical Questions About Mary, and that's what we were doing. We were getting the kind of the method uh, of doing this uh, in the first segment. Now we're going to one of the uh, questions that non-Catholics often bring up, and that is the question of the brothers and sisters of Jesus. Uh, if Mary was, in fact, a perpetually virgin, uh, if there were no other uh, biological brothers and sisters of Jesus, that is, uh, brothers and sisters who had passed through the womb of Mary, then what do we do with uh, these phrases, the brothers and sisters of Jesus? Don't these phrases, uh, aren't they incompatible with the Catholic uh, Church's teaching here? And uh, you begin your book with uh, Mark chapter 6, which deals with this uh, phrase, the brothers of, and sisters of Jesus. So, Father, go ahead and uh, pick us up where we were just before the break. Sure. I think the great thing about the book is, um, though we spend a lot of time prefacing languages, the book is designed that you can just meditatively read through it without yeah. any need to, to reference to foreign languages. But right, uh, right. And, and in fact, one of the most clear arguments is this first point, which is in, in Matthew 1, you know, we're all going to have this read for our Christmas Gospels, the lineage of Jesus, and um, the first thing that sticks out, uh, as was considered fascinating by some of the people that, that read the book, which uh, I think is really interesting myself, um, that they were so fascinated with this, was the very first Gospel, uh, and the very first lines, already tells us who brothers and sisters can be, and that is when Matthew tells us that Abraham begot Isaac, and Isaac begot Jacob, and then Jacob begot um, Joseph and all of his brothers. But his brothers, his brethren, as they're used in the New Testament, are uh, mostly brothers of another mother. There's only really, uh, uh, really, Benjamin is, is of the same mother, right? That's good, right, right. So, uh, you know, pretty much 90% of the time when you're talking about the brothers of Joseph, you're talking about sons of a different mother, of a different womb, to use your uh, mm-hmm. uh, inferences there. So we already see that Matthew provides for us the principal key for, for looking at everything that is going to be upcoming in the rest of the Gospels, that it means the child of a different mother. Uh, I think one of the other more fascinating passages, before I know uh, William's probably chomping at the bit to talk about um, Mary's vow of perpetual virginity, uh, especially because there's uh, all kinds of fun patristic stuff that we've found in addition to what's already out, um, but um, 
the uh, the other great verse is if we were to go to Mark six, which is early on in the book, mm-hmm. we would see that uh, Jesus uh, goes back to his hometown Nazareth, and uh, some of his opposition party people that really are trying to put up a block against the gospel being preached in his hometown Nazareth, they list off very precisely the people they think that are in Jesus's family that aren't worthy of mention. They're not honorable people, or they're actually actively opposing his ministry. So the first two that they mention without honor are Mary, and then in the list comes uh, a woman who has uh, Simon and Josie's and James. We may be familiar with these being called the brothers of Jesus, Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Uh, just like in Matthew's Gospel. They could be sons of a different mother, but we don't know that yet. So Jesus' enemies list is quite precise. It's first his mother, then this woman who has four sons, of whom I've named Josie's, etc., Simon, and those are called his brothers. And then there's these native girls that live in Nazareth that are called his sisters, and they are actively opposing him in Nazareth. And it, it, it looks at first that we don't really know much more until we go down just a few more verses in Mark 6 from that description, and we see Jesus answers with great precision, tit for tat, the entire list that is proposed to him by his enemies. And he skips over his mother, who is with honor, and this is going to happen in Matthew's Gospel again, and it's even more precise in Matthew's Gospel. The reason why he skips over his mother is because Matthew is going to add the story of Joseph's uh, Annunciation and Mary's virgin birth. And this is quite clear that in Matthew's Gospel, the same thing happens where Joseph in the enemies list uh, who is mentioned, and Mary in the enemies list, which is mentioned in Matthew, is ignored because they are people with honor. So Jesus skips over naming Mary as a person that is without honor. He admits that the second group listed by his enemies are family members that aren't special. They're not kings, they're not prophets, they're not rich people, and yet he calls them not his brothers, but he answers his enemies' list and he says, a prophet is without honor among his cousins. And the word that he uses is sin genes, uh-huh. or sin genes. Uh, Which is different word, than Adelphos, right? What, what's that? That's different than Adelphos or Adelphoi. Yeah, exactly. It's uh, uh, this word, if you look it up in your best dictionary or lexicon of Greek, it's quite clear that singenis, or cousin, is meant to be diametrically opposed to child of the same mother. So the entire huh. definition Interesting. of what Jesus is saying in his tit-for-tat list to his enemies is that these four people that you just mentioned, those are my singenis, those are my cousins, that means... By definition, in Greek, they are the children of a different mother. And then the last group that he answers in the tit-for-tat list, the active opposition that he's getting in Nazareth uh, in Mark 6, he lists those persons as members of his household. And what we notice is that St. Jerome, I I thank William for this discovery, is St. Jerome had already noticed that in all the synoptic Gospels is there's a threefold division of a house. There's the heads of the family, which are the military-age young men. Then there is a household, which is what these girls belong to, and the definition of a household in the Book of Numbers in the Old Testament, which the synoptics are using verbatim, uh, is the extended family, not brothers and sisters, Mm. the extended family. And and so what we end up having, then, is Jesus in Matthew's Gospel, as well as in, in Mark's Gospel, use that exact list of his enemies to mean his cousins, his children that live in the same 
uh, general vicinity, but are of a different mother, and the people in his household, which are extended members of his family, namely his female cousins. And so we exactly know there that we must exclude all these lists of so-called brothers and sisters from being of the same mother. That's a little bit different from saying perpetual virginity, so I'll, I'll let right. William take up the slap. So that, that's one way of dealing with the uh, the distinctions uh, between cousins, uh, household, relatives, uh, uh, biological brothers, sisters. What about your argument, uh, William, that uh, she Mary was perpetually virgin because, in fact, she made a vow? Uh, so tell us what the biblical material offers us uh, in that argument. That is a fantastic question there, Al. And I think when we look at Luke, we recognize clearly that when Luke is breaking down the text, that he's referring to the book of Judges 11. And again, the one thing we clearly like to point out is, in the book we rely heavily on the scripture, but we can recognize that even the early church fathers recognized this connection. Because if we go to Judges 11, we notice that in the beginning, Jephthah makes a vow to God before a battle. The Spirit of the Lord gives the inspiration to Jephthah, to make the vow. It sounds really familiar, doesn't it? The Spirit of the Lord. Mm -hmm. If he wins the battle, the first thing he encounters in the way home, he will offer it up to the Lord as a sacrifice. That's right. So the points in Holy Writ are really clear. Jephthah, under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, made a vow, and when he encounters his daughter, and she's notified of the unfortunate circumstance, she responds by saying, and she said to her father, let this be done for me. Let me alone for two months. And remember, Mary visited Elizabeth for how long? For three months. Yeah. And this is incredible. Look at this, Al. She comes back, Jephthah's daughter, on the third month, as the Greek text tells us, as she is left alone for two, she goes away to mourn and bewail her virginity. Right. She founds out, finds out she has been vowed to perpetual virginity. And Luke... The incredible historian that he is, Al, catches this perfectly. And in Luke 1, Mary is saying the exact words, How can this be when the angel Gabriel greets her, since I do not know man? The fathers view these words as a vow, and the text does as well, because it's clearly there in Judges. And another thing, Al, that's been so important that we relied on to show this clearly in the text uh, and Father noted this. Father, Father looked clearly in the biggest, the, the massive connect, uh, collection of Greek texts known to mankind, the Thesaurus Lingre Grece, in all of Greek literature, all of Greek literature prior to 100 AD, there are only two areas with this citation. That is Judges 11 and Luke 1. Luke is directly quoting that and telling us she knew not man. She remained... Just like Jephthah's daughter. Yeah, just like Jephthah's daughter. Yeah. Yeah. Absolutely. Wow. Very good. Very good. Um, what, um, uh, what else can you extract more from that uh, encounter between uh, Gabriel and Mary uh, regarding her future? There's the reference there to Jephthah's daughter... Uh, what about the language that's uh, used by Luke uh, about the Holy Spirit overshadowing her? Yes. yes. Did you want to take that up, or did you want me to? Yeah, I'll, I'll, 
I'll take that up really quickly, and then I'll let you okay. follow up with it. That's, that's a great question, Al. And in fact, we cover that clearly. We show that clearly the language being utilized here shows, without a shadow of a doubt, that Mary is being shown as the new ark of the covenant. The language is very clear here. And the language, by the way, as you know, Al, we find, um, we find all these parallelisms of Mary uh, being the new ark, what happens, the baby leaps in the womb, um, uh, you know, all of the language, Mary is carrying the word, you know, the new word. Right. Uh, Mary is, is this special figure that is carrying our incarnate Lord and Savior. So really everything that is broken down there points to her being the new ark of the new covenant. We show that as well, but incredible, Al, how this text is so loaded with theology, because not only does it point to that, but it shows that Mary was the one, the very first one, to hear that word and to vouchsafe that word. And indeed, there is no objection in Luke 11 that people think there is, because when Luke says, blessed, rather are those that hear the word of God and obey it, we're directly told in Luke 1 that she is the one that heard right. that word first right. and made it. Yes, yeah, so even even in the place where some people see that Jesus is minimizing uh, Mary's status, he's in fact calling them back to what she did at the moment of the Annunciation. She was the one who heard God's word and kept it. Very good. Absolutely, yes. Um, do you? We're, we've got about 90 seconds left here, and let me just ask a more general question, because I think this is a wonderful guide for people uh, to, again, take seriously the biblical text when it comes to these uh, dogmas regarding the uh, Blessed Mother. Uh, what was your favorite, I'm just curious, what was your favorite biblical insight uh, as you worked through this, William? My favorite one was definitely Luke 2. I would recommend people check it out for Luke 2. We clearly show that the purification there, which we're told in the Greek was for Mary and Christ, is not one for sin, but rather highlights the special role of Mary in salvation history. And I know Father has this special one as well, so I want to give him the last word. Father, we've got about 15 seconds. Go ahead. All right. Well, it's definitely... Uh the relationship between Judges 11, Mary's perpetual vow of virginity, which justifies Ambrose, Gregory Nyssa, and Augustine. And uh, we even have, through William, the money quotes for that one now. (laughs) Very good. Gentlemen, thank you so much. Uh, We'll talk again. Uh, It's a marvelous book. And it's, it's, I love the, uh, I also like the length of it. It's only 150 pages, and it's packed with material. Thank you. Oh, you're very welcome. Thank you.